Hello world, this is Roger Corvale and this is For the Hope. Here we read through the Bible conversationally, talk about the truth claims of Christianity, and learn to fall more in love with Jesus and the people in his world. You ready? Let's roll. Welcome. Remember this line. In Christianity, there is no coercion. I'll say that again. In Christianity, there is no coercion. Hey, Hopeful, welcome to For the Hope's Daily Audio Bible, where we consider our life and work stories in light of God's story. And sometimes I try to give you a line that will work for you or help you as you're talking with other people. And today we're actually going to have two of them. The first of which is, in Christianity, there is no coercion. Let's pick up in our New Testament segment, Acts chapter 4, picking up in verse 23. Remember that Peter and John just got arrested for, you know, healing a dude. <laughs> and so they they threatened them and kind of boot them out. And here we go. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You said, through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your servant David. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For, in fact... In this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the, uh, at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. However, they kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? 
You have not lied to people, but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet, and when the young maiden came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all those who heard these things. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's colonnade, and no one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And that gets us up through chapter 5, verse 16. So what's our line? In Christianity, there is no coercion. You just heard about people selling stuff and taking care of each other communally. The challenge for you and me here today is that while we are called to care for people, widows, orphans, and to do so sacrificially, critical here, nowhere in the Bible do you see that being done by force, coercion. In your Christianity, there is no coercion. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. We saw that in the contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, right? So when it comes to our own contemporary political systems, we have to ask what promotes human flourishing in a way that best accords with God's view of the world. And I'm not even going to name names like capitalism, communism, socialism, conservatism, liberalism, or a hundred other isms. What I'm going to remind you to do as you're thinking about the right way to vote is that in Christianity, there is no conversion. Jesus doesn't force himself on you. You with me? The heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. As we turn back to our Old Testament segment, most of us remember the book of Jonah and remember where Jonah didn't want to go, right? Famous story. Well, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Well, it is Nineveh that is the topic or the object of the preaching that you're going to hear in the book of Nahum today. And except for the book by the name Nahum, we know almost nothing about this guy. Um, But background, Nineveh, remember, is the capital of Assyria. And since the time of Tilgath-Pilassar III, which was 745 to 727 BC, Assyria had dominated the ancient Near East. Now, here's why this is important. Its dominance and influence extended beyond the merely political requirements of allegiance and allegiance and taxation to the practices of worship and of the vassal nations. Well, why did God let the northern kingdom of Israel fall to Assyria? Well, because of their own junk. 
So we think the book was composed about 664, uh, 663 BC and 12, 612 BC. But get this. Most Old Testament prophetic books predict God's judgment against Israel and Judah, right? Oh, you've been sacrificing your kids and worshiping idols and not taking care of the poor. But the prophecy of Nahum is directed against Nineveh, which is representative of this Assyrian nation. And what Nahum utters against Nineveh is, in principle, God's message to all evil nations. So, short little book of Nahum. Here we go. Oh, and then one other thing. I want to share with you one line. In our reflection segment, I'll share with you one line for maybe how to talk about this with others. The pronouncement concerning Nineveh, a book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes his vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. Destruction of Nineveh, the next section. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. But he will completely destroy Nineveh like an overwhelming flood, and he will chase his enemies into darkness. Whatever you plot against the Lord, he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time. For they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard, and like straw that is fully dry. One has gone out from you who plots evil against the Lord and is a wicked counselor. Promise of Judah's deliverance. This is what the Lord says. Though they are strong and numerous, they will still be mowed down and he will pass away. Though I have punished you, I will punish you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. The Assyrian king's demise. The Lord has issued an order concerning you. There will be no offspring to carry on your name. I will eliminate the carved idol and cast image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you, for you are contemptible. Look to the mountain. The feet of the herald who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. Attack against Nineveh. One who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications. Watch the road. Brace yourself. Summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. By the way, that was an Assyrian practice. Um, They would smother themselves in the blood of their slain enemies. 
Kind of nice, huh? The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations, and the spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers, and they stumble as they advance. They race to its wall. The protective shield is set in place. The river gates are opened, and the palace erodes away. Beauty is stripped. She is carried away. Her ladies-in-waiting moan like the sound of doves, and they beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeing. Stop! Stop! they cry. But no one turns back. Plunder the silver! Plunder the gold! There is no end to the treasure and abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation. Hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn, every face grows pale. Where is the lion's lair or the feeding ground of the young lions? Where the lion and lioness prowled and the lion's cub with nothing to frighten them away? The lion mauled whatever its cub needed and strangled prey for its lioness. It filled up its dens with the kill and its lairs with mauled prey. Beware I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. I will make your chariots go up in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. Nineveh's downfall. Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel Galloping horse and jolting chariot, charging horseman, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over their dead. Because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery who treats nations and clans like merchandise, by her prostitution and sorcery, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. I will lift your skirts over your face and display your nakedness to the nations, your shame to the kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you, and then all who see you will recoil from you, saying, Nineveh is devastated. Who will show sympathy to her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Are you better than Thebes? that sat along the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea and the river her wall? Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength. Put and Libya were among her allies, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and all her nobles were bound in chains. You also will become drunk. You will hide. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees, with figs that ripened first. When they are shaken, they fall right into the mouth of the eater. Look, your troops are like women among you. Your land's city gates are wide open to your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your fortresses. Step into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. The fire will devour you there. 
The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locust. Multiply yourselves like the young locust. Multiply like the swarming locust. You have made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. The young locust strips the land and flies away. Your court officials are like swarming locusts, and your scribes like clouds of locusts, which settle on the clouds on a cold day. When the sun rises, they take off, and no one knows where they are. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep, your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? And my friends, that is the book of Nahum. And honestly, I don't remember. um, You know, remember that a good chunk of prophecy in the Old Testament has kind of both a near field window and a long term window, right? There's oftentimes wordplay, you know, some of it we know. You know, Israel and Judah were restored, and some of it is visionary for the future yet to happen to us, meaning symbolic of Jesus coming again. And the truth is, <laughs> I don't know which is which here. But we're going to wrap up here today with our wisdom segment being Psalm 149. Hallelujah. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the faithful. Let Israel celebrate its maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the faithful celebrate in triumphal glory. Let them shout for joy on their beds. Let the exaltation of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands, inflicting vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, building or binding their kings with chains and their dignitaries with iron shackles, carrying out the judgment decreed against them. This honor is for all his faithful people. Hallelujah. Psalm 149. So, there you go. Um, Exuberant praise of God's people is the weapon by which they conquer all their enemies. Spiritual conflict, as the Holman Bible Handbook says, spiritual conflict requires spiritual weapons. Hmm. Oh, maybe like we read at the end of Ephesians. All right, here's that one other line, right? Remember that in a sense, this principle of governance in Christianity, there is no coercion, right? But what do we learn? Why would we read something like all Debbie Downer on us, like the book of Nahum? Well, remember, what is the purpose of the whole Bible? It's to know who God is, who we are, why we need a savior, and what hope looks like. Well, that, my friends, is exactly what we see in a way, right, in the book of Nahum. We see the sovereignty of God. We see the fallenness of humanity, in this case, Assyria, and the nature of hope, right? There is hope for all nations, which is why all nations will be subject 
to uh, <laughs> to salvation or or the consequences of rebelling against God. And there wasn't an explicit description of Jesus as Savior, but there was an ending there that ended with God as deliverer. And what does he do? He promises to deliver perfect justice, which of course, as you hear me say often, is what is so amazing about grace. Because I don't really want perfect justice, at least not for me. (laughs) I love you, my friends. Amen. Amen.